Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. And I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Butcher's Crossing by John Williams, originally published in 1960. It is the 1870s, and Will Andrews, fired up by Emerson to seek an original relation to nature, drops out of Harvard and heads west. He washes up in Butcher's Crossing, a small Kansas town on the outskirts of nowhere. Butcher's Crossing is full of restless men looking for ways to make money and ways to waste it. Before long, Andrews strikes up a friendship with one of them, a man who regales Andrews with tales of immense herds of buffalo, ready for the taking, hidden away in a beautiful valley deep in the Colorado Rockies. He convinces Andrews to join in an expedition to track the animals down. The journey out is grueling, but at the end is a place of paradisal richness. Once there, however, the three men abandon themselves to an orgy of slaughter, so caught up in killing buffalo that they lose all sense of time. Winter soon overtakes them, they are snowed in. Next spring, half insane with cabin fever, cold, and hunger, they stagger back to Butcher's Crossing to find a world as irredeemably changed as they have been. Wow, that was a mouthful. And we are joined by a different John Williams, books editor at the Washington Post. All right. Well, welcome, Mr. John Williams. We resurrected you from the dead to discuss (laughs) your book. Just kidding. Uh, This is John Williams here from the Washington Post, and it's exciting to have you on. Your Twitter handle is not that John Williams, and we have been debating whether or not that's a reference to the composer or the author. Where does the name come from? That is a reference to the composer. Yes. But in a way, it's just a reference to almost any John Williams that someone might know. It's probably not me. But the author has had, has made inroads, which is mm-hmm. shocking and kind of lovely because until a few years ago, you know, every I can't tell you how many people still, <laughs> I'm seeing my driver's license or whatever, start humming the Star Wars theme. Oh. And what's amazing is, is that there are so many, I think the disambiguation page on Wikipedia has something like, 200 John Williamses, and I'm not exaggerating, but (laughs) it's like, they're all sort of, I'm sure the people like there are six Australian politicians and Australians probably know some of them, but it's amazing to me that the composer has so taken over such a common, boring name that he's the only person that 99.9% of people will think of when they hear that name. Yeah, that's That's true. That's quite an achievement. So I'm glad there are a few author people now. It makes me feel less alone. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to give some brief background on one of the maybe not as famous as John Williams, the composer, but still storied John Williams is the author. John Williams is from Northeast Texas. He failed out of college and drifted into the Army Air Corps where he completed a draft of his first novel. Back home, he found a small publisher for the book and entered the University of Denver, where he eventually taught creative writing until his retirement in the 1980s. He published two volumes of poetry as well as three novels, all of which are reprinted by NYRB, including one of their most successful but also controversial classics, <laughs> Stoner, which we are not talking about today. Mm-hmm. What are um, your thoughts? Or Okay, so that, that's what we were getting to. Um, what are your thoughts on the kind of John Williams phenomenon? Well, I think they ended up, I think NYRB published the fourth slash first one too in in the last few years which Williams disowned I forget what Mm -hmm. it's called offhand but um Stoner I read Stoner 
probably 15 years ago or so, kind of before some of the backlash, it seems like there are waves of backlash that come now. It, it's like every two years, people forget that they were upset on Twitter about it two years yeah. before when they just start unleashing their opinions again. And and I had kind of a boring reaction to it because I wasn't, you know, it has its really staunch defenders. And then all these people who more lately have, I think partly because of how, how hyped up it is by other people, um, <laughs> there's an equal and opposite reaction to hate it. I kind of felt lukewarm about it. I mean, I went into it thinking, in addition to loving his name, uh, which I just think is very elegant um, for an author. <laughs> else. Yeah. Uh, I went into it just thinking that on paper, it really sounded like my kind of book because mm. it, 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 there was something about the way people were describing it that made me think of William Maxwell, who's a writer I really love. And I just thought, yeah, oh, like, earnest, middle American, thoughtful. And I ended up, I just ended up liking it okay and not mm-hmm. feeling very blown away by it. And I didn't have a strong opinion or memory of it really for a lot of years. And I still, I still don't. I think that Butcher's Crossing, the book we read for this episode is, you know, without going back and revisiting Stoner yet, which I might one day, um, I do think this is the stronger novel. We, mm-hmm. neither of us have yet, have yet read it, but it does seem like because we do an NYRB podcast, people proffer their opinions to us frequently on that book. And it seems like not having much of an opinion may be the strongest opinion you could have. <laughs> and I think we caused the last last round of Twitter backlash on it because we had a bracket of NYRB authors and the John Williams matchups always got really, really heated, especially against Henry James. I think that one was the worst where <laughs> lots of comments all day on that. I saw, I saw many of those. I forget how far did Williams get? Did he lose to James? He I lost he to did. James. He, he yeah. beat uh, Manchette, and that made some people mad. I mean, a lot of the most successful, like best-selling NYRB classics authors didn't make it nearly as far as we thought they yeah, would. Babbitt's Eve Babbitt was first just round. like, nope. Hmm. Didn't expect yeah. that. Who'd she lose to? I forget. Cummings, I believe. Barbara Cummings, yeah. Oh, yeah. She has a kind of, yeah, her cult has grown thanks to NYRB. She does have a cult following, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Babbitt's cult was maybe at its peak like 10, 12 years ago, and, and Cummings has come on. Mm. But Henry, I mean, the Henry James John Williams thing, I do remember that matchup and thinking that people were, I can get nerdy about tournaments and lists and things. Me too. And I just felt like the NYRB angle of it, like even if I don't, I mean, Henry James is, and you know, I doubt anyone will come for me over this, but the superior author and the and more important <laughs> author. But as an NYRB tournament, I just don't think of James. What do they have? They have a, like a collection of stories. I don't, do they publish any of the novels? They have two novels, his New York stories. The Outcry, The Other House, kind of not, not the big ones that you think of. Yeah. 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 So I still, I think just taking the tournament as meaning mostly NYRB, I would have voted for Williams there. Yeah, people seem to just define their own voting criteria. <laughs> like we, it was an online poll. We had no ability to shape the mob there. Like <laughs> we yeah, just kind of put it out. Yeah, the danger of democracy. It was fascinating though. And who won? The final was Sylvia. It Penn. was Tova Janssen won against okay. Natalia Ginsburg. Yeah. Oh, against Ginsburg. Okay, for some reason, it's not. Townsend Warner got to the final four. She went. She went far. She went quite far. I don't know. Anyway, I don't. I don't mean to. I could talk about like brackets all day. So, we'll... how do you do during March Madness? Not great. <laughs> you know, when I was a teenager, I don't think I've ever known anything in my life as much as I knew about college basketball when I was say 
like 13 years old to 18 years old or so and still did battle. That's incredible. My dad ran a big pool with his, um, through his office, but they got in brackets from like all over the place. And he was actually, the New York Times did an article in the 90s about like how much time people spend on office pools for the NCAA. And he, like his picture was in it. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's incredible. You have a storied history in your family of brackets. Storied history of, of casual gambling. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing we have to get to before we really get into the book is we talk always about the cover art. Mm-hmm. And in this edition, the painting they put on the front of the cover is Lander's Peak Rocky Mountains by Albert Bierstadt. And it was completed in 1863. The painting depicts a valley that might as well be the one described in Butcher's Crossing with its green pasture, jagged surroundings, mountains, water. He is a Prussian born, but moved to the Eastern US in his youth and then traveled west to get inspiration for his work. His visions of mountain and desert landscapes were revered for their beauty and accuracy and garnered him fame and fortune. But ironically, later in his life, he drew criticism for his empty romanticism and fell out of favor with the times. Many of his paintings were burdened in a studio fire. So, John, what do you think about the art and how that and the artist might reflect the book well? Well, it's funny now that I'm looking at it more closely that it does say Rocky Mountains. This doesn't I wouldn't have guessed that this was the Rocky Mountains, but it's forbidding. The, mm-hmm. the bio you read, it makes a lot of sense with the book, mm-hmm. the romanticism falling out of fla- uh, favor and um, or flavor, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and, but it's funny because looking at this cover was actually one, I think, a very, very subtle reason why I because I've been meaning to read this book for many years. Not that there aren't 300 other books I could say that about, but. <laughs> I don't, I think one reason, something about the the Western idea coming off of Stoner and this painting, which is striking, but also kind of gray and dull unless you look at it closely, mm. I think maybe was a little forbidding to me. And so that's held you back. Are all, are all the covers in your experience so far, like, do they all have as good and as sort of apt a backstory? Yeah. Like for the most part, not 100% of the time, but it seems like somebody in the NYRB like factory is just like, <laughs> they are digging through the art history. They like get a real kick out of like finding these resonances that you'd have to like have a podcast with the NYRB classics to even figure out are there, you know, it's not <laughs> reflected in just the name of the artist and the, the year that the painting came out on the back. Right, because some of them do seem very fitting just visually, and then others you probably have to dig a little, which is interesting. Yeah, when I was reading about the author's life last night, putting the rundown together, I was just like, dang, that is basically almost the story of Butcher's Crossing, at least in like theme and narrative of this the, the West being so grand and then dying out in what is ultimately <laughs> a fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is that Albert Bierstadt? Mm-hmm. Okay. Look into him more after we're done. Yeah. He was actually, um, interestingly, I was reading also that he was criticized for his portrayal of indigenous people in his paintings. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, well, you know, that's definitely been a topic of of discussion. And then it was like, because people thought it was a blight on his paintings and disgusting to represent such a foreign and savage people in the West. And I was Mm -hmm. like, Times have changed. The controversy has shifted. Yeah, and that also that also sort of loops into the book because there's just yeah. that one line. Yes, um, as I can tell. And if, when you first read it, you might sort of blanch, but then you you know you realize pretty soon after that it's um, 
that it's as much a it's it's one of the many damning things about this character that we'll get into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just to start out our discussion, Butcher's Crossing, of course, as you can tell from the image on the cover, is about the mythical West, and it deals in genre tropes uh, while also, I think, aspiring to something greater. Uh, what is your opinion on this book's relationship to the Western? Does it reproduce the archetypes that it's dealing in, or does it transcend them in a way? I, well, I should start by saying I'm not a big Western reader, so I don't have a lot. Neither of, are we. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen, but I have seen many movies. I'm more of a Western movie person than a novel person. And so I think I'm pretty familiar. <laughs> and just being an American of a certain age, I've had my fill. So I think I know the archetypes. It's It actually does, I think, a great job of creating the atmosphere that Westerns create. And I think that there are a couple of characters who you could probably wonder, they blur the line a little bit between, is he playing with it or is it just a little bit of a lazy recreation? Uh, In particular, we'll get to this maybe in more detail, but the only woman in the book is a prostitute named Francine who, you know, is, is pretty lightly sketched and kind of serves mostly as a um, again, you can see this is kind of damning and not just unintentional, but uh, mostly just sort of serves as a way for the main character, Will Andrews, to think about stuff <laughs> and himself mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, one or two other kind of hard bitten characters along the way. But I think I think mostly it's it's very expertly sets up the, this idea of this town sort of on the border of nature and where people are s- scraping by and in these kind of saloons. And I felt very visually throughout the entire book, really, really, really well and securely placed to the point that, you know, and I think sometimes this can sound, I usually hate it when people say this, but I'll say it anyway. It's very, very easy to picture this as a film, as a kind of very tense thriller of Mm -hmm. man versus nature. And that's, I think ultimately, I think the, the Western for me was in the first and last third of the book, which are um, a little less long and involved in the long middle section where they're in Butcher's Crossing. Once they're out in the Rockies, which we'll get to, it's, to me, it felt a lot more like a man versus nature story and just expertly done. Yes. I was talking with a friend of ours about who would be a good director for this movie, because like you said, it it does feel cinematic. And he, a little cynically, was like, I don't think any modern director could adapt this in a way that does justice to the story. He said, maybe Anthony Mann was the only person that could have done this. I was thinking Bob, hmm. Bud Boddicker as well could be a good good person for this. Hmm. Do you, out of curiosity, just a side question. Do you think, do you know a good director that you could think of for this movie? It didn't, it didn't strike me. I mean, the, <laughs> the first name that always comes to my mind is the Coen brothers, just because I, yeah. I, you know, I love the care they take with everything so much. But I think you'd want someone who is maybe a little bit less arch. Yeah. Yeah, no one really pops to mind, but the material is there for sure. In the first and last third, I don't know, maybe Clint Eastwood or something of the Unforgiven moment. Cassie and I have been binging Clint Eastwood movies recently. So <laughs> Yeah, before you hopped on the call, we were trying to figure out what role he would play of the characters. Yeah. And it's kind of... Yeah, I was arguing... Yeah, not maybe not today, but... <laughs> right, in his prime. I was arguing that he would be a really good McDonald sort of in his million dollar baby sort of era yeah because i don't think he's not miller is someone who is kind of blind to his surroundings andrews is too green charlie hoag is too crazy and schneider's too strange so that that <laughs> i went with with mcdonald 
Sorry, maybe I just summed up all the characters in their archetypes a little bit too quickly. Maybe you could throw out Francine. Maybe he can make a really good Francine. <laughs> Actually, I'm, to your point, even in his prime, I'm not sure he really fits well with any of them. You could, you could, he could stretch and do it. But yeah, no, he's, all, he's so. usually playing best when he's playing someone with a kind of like standing in the corner, thinking about yeah. what's going on. And all these characters are kind of too in it, but they're very well chosen, which is part of the, I think, the success of the cast. I'm referring to it as a cast. So I'm already thinking of it in cinematic terms. It, feel, it feels like a cast. I mean, yeah. they're very well established and then their relationships to each other are well established. And it, there is a, there's a real drama. I'm probably misusing this, but kind of a dramaturgical aspect to the, to the middle of the plot. Yeah. I got theatrical yeah. feelings as well. Just the, the <laughs> restraint and the way that everything's so carefully laid out and we move from one scene to the next and it feels like mm-hmm. we're not in any room that we don't need to be in. Yes. And it was a very um, efficient book. Yeah. And then when you come back and this is getting ahead of ourselves, but when you return to Butcher's Crossing at the end and things have changed, you feel that change so profoundly because of how carefully set up mm-hmm. it was in the first instance. Yes, I agree with that completely. Yeah. Talk, talking about characters that are a little too involved, though, for one, the protagonist, Will Andrews, who is a, a Harvard dropout and decides he's like, I'm going to seek self-discovery. I'm going to make my fortune in the West. He gets what, one of the initiating points of that is a lecture he gets at his college from Waldo Emerson. Of course, Andrews' innocent ideals are swiftly challenged in the book. In the introduction by a former student of Williams, actually, Michelle Latiolet calls the story a goading of emersonian mm-hmm. transcendentalism so how do you see williams's narrative confronting this philosophy yeah i'm glad you mentioned the introduction i was going to later that it's it's concise and very smart and in a way it sums up i think what is i think one of the reasons that the novel impressed me so much is because it's quite easy to sum up in a way and it's really all in the execution of it that remains, never gets too heavy handed. But you know, I would argue that you know from, I guess the introduction comes before this, but from this quote of Emerson's at the start of the book, which I'll only read part of, that that <laughs> someone's someone's headed for a comeuppance. Um, <laughs> this is from uh, Emerson's Nature, his famous essay, Nature. At the gates of the forest, the surprised man of the world is forced to leave his city estimates of great and small, wise and foolish. The knapsack of custom falls off his back with the first step he takes into these precincts. Here is sanctity which shames our religions and reality which discredits our heroes. Here we find nature to be the circumstance which dwarfs every other circumstance and judges like a god all men that come to her. Now, they will be. You know, <laughs> it doesn't take long <laughs> to understand that what's happening in this book is that this, uh, I think you described him as green, Harvard dropout. He's 23 years old and he has been inspired to go west. This is the 1870s, early 1870s. Not really, not to find his fortune, but to sort of test himself against nature and to find some true reversion of himself, as he puts it at some point. And you don't know all the specifics of how this is going to turn out, but you know that this is going to be a trial that he essentially fails. I don't think there's ever a doubt in the book mm-hmm. from the first page. And and again, that makes it kind of, you know, there are a lot of ways I think to go wrong with a premise like that. And yet Williams really rings out, I think, almost all of the tension and the and the change 
that he can out of that. Yeah, I I found myself marveling at the way that he handled Andrew's character throughout the the Colorado portion once they actually make the journey because I just kept expecting Andrews to break down in some like ridiculous comical way and I would just write in my notes like why hasn't he just completely freaked out yet because he's just he's a little scholarly boy you know the idea I'm gonna seek nature because I read an essay called (laughs) nature (laughs) like it's just not a not a solid plan, <laughs> belly full of fire, but nothing much more. But Williams lets keeps him at a distance. And we have some like, there's some very gorgeous passages where we gain access to his, his thoughts, but it's, we never get too close to him. And so I'm always just kind of wondering at his passivity or whether it is really passivity, what, what, he, what he's thinking about. How does a Harvard student like suddenly turn off their brain for eight nine months, however long they end up being out there and cope. Yeah, it's a good question. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. I mean, you're not, you don't, Yeah. the book is not told from his perspective, really. But I just want to very, very quickly kind of set up the three acts scenario because we'll probably be mostly talking about the second act. In the first, Andrews comes to Butcher's Crossing, Kansas in 1873, I think it is, from Boston, where he's left his family behind his dad. And he wants to go out into the wilderness and he finds this guy named Miller who essentially gets him to fund this drive to go out and kill a bunch of buffalo, he hopes, uh, for their hides and come back to Butcher's Crossing and sell them. And in the middle stretch of the book, Miller and a Skinner, a very reluctant Skinner named Schneider, with the amazing name of Fred Schneider, which I believe is the B-52's uh, <laughs> singer. Um, oh. It's funny picturing him in this role. The Skinner named Schneider and another kind of a guy named Charlie Hogue, whose role is a little less clearly defined. Yeah. And they really just, they, they suffer through these incredible trials and tribulations. And then in the final third of the book, they come back to Butcher's Crossing. We won't spoil too, too much about the condition in which they come back. But the real, to me, the, the great accomplishment of the book, and it goes to your point about his passivity and what he's really thinking, is that he doesn't really have time to do that in a lot of these situations because he's kind of thrown into these really it's just survive or die mm-hmm. moment yeah and yeah. he's you know he's very much depending on the people who know more than he does about doing that out there and I, there's that one great scene where he at some point you know early on he's trying to skin one of the buffaloes and he fails a couple of times i think and they describe mm-hmm. him going back to try to find this here and they describe him going back to the camp, you know, and he tells the other people, you finish it up, I've had enough. And then he doesn't wait for a reply and he goes back to the camp and he removes his shirt and it says the, the blood from the buffalo was beginning to stiffen on his undershirt. As quickly as he could, he removed the rest of his clothing and stood in the late afternoon shadow, shivering in the cool air. From his chest to below his navel was the brownish red stain of buffalo blood. And in removing his clothing, his arms and hands had brushed against other parts of his body so that he was blotched with stains, hued from a pale vermilion to a deep brownish crimson. He thrust his hands into the icy pool formed by the spring. The cold water clotted the blood, and for a moment he feared that he could not remove it from his skin. Then he kind of, you know, he splashes water on himself and eventually gets it off. But there's this sense that he's almost been like permanently stained by even his effort to be this tough (laughs) or, you know, and he feels overwhelmed and incapable. And I wouldn't say he really ever feels anything other than that. But yeah, I mean, even in the end of the book, it's you are you really get from Williams's perspective the way that Andrews kind of stands in for a lot of different people, including maybe just like the average American. Yeah. And that he's 
really just be cowed and sort of like, you know, a little more respectful of, of nature. Yes, precisely. And you read from one of the epigraphs, which is from Emerson, but there is another from Melville's The Confidence Man, uh, which in its title enshrines one of the classic stock characters of American literature, the con man. And I kind of saw Miller, as the crazed hunter, as stepping in to fill that role in this book. What did you think of his character? And how did you see him representing the spirit of, like, Andrews is one side of America, he's another side of America, this kind of expansionist impulse, extraction and pillage? Yes. Well, he he's a, I think he's a great character. And the most, maybe the one that will stay with me the most. I mean, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I just finished reading it uh, yesterday because I wanted to be fresh in my mind. But yeah, Miller becomes, at first he's, a, I mean, at first he seems like a, not a con man necessarily, but I mean, he has elements of that. Like yeah. he gets into people's confidences and he makes them feel more confident. But he also, yeah, I guess he's taking advantage of the fact that Andrews has this money and he can maybe fund uh, this thing that Miller's wanted to do for a while. But he but he thinks, I do think he believes that it will happen, that yeah. he will find all these buffalo, which you're first, sort of first led to wonder whether or not they even really exist still in these numbers. But he thinks there's this sort of hidden valley where he knows that there are thousands of them. And so, you know, he does think that they might find all these hides and bring them back and make a lot of money off of them. But what happens when they're out there is that Miller becomes this sort of, he, you know, he, he becomes like the, um, it's like the, the Kurtz character or the, like the judge and Meridian where yep. he yeah. just becomes unhinged. And it's clear that what drives him, that this is, this is something I really wanted to, to read. Cause I think it, this is also a good example of how, you know, I think Williams gets at these themes very firmly without, without somehow seeming heavy handed, at least to me, he didn't. But, you know, what he's saying yeah. in, in these moments is is very obvious. And so the first of them is when Andrews is helping Miller kill some of the buffalo and, and, and he comes to this moment. It says, as the pain of his body increased, his mind seemed to detach itself from the pain, to rise above it so that he could see himself and Miller more clearly than he had before. During the last hour of the stand, he came to see Miller as a mechanism, an automaton moved by the moving herd. And he came to see Miller's destruction of the buffalo, not as a lust for blood or a lust for the hides or a lust for what the hides would bring, or even at last the blind lust of fury that toiled darkly within him. He came to see the destruction as a cold, mindless response to the life in which Miller had immersed himself. And he looked upon himself, crawling dumbly after Miller upon the flatbed of the valley, picking up the empty cartridges that he spent, tugging the water keg, husbanding the rifle, cleaning it, offering it to Miller when he needed it. He looked upon himself and did not know who he was or where he went. And that's sort of like the Miller as just blind maniac. And, and he continues to be that way. And, and to a point where there's almost something comical where that Skinner Schneider keeps trying to convince him to turn around and it's not worth it. And yeah. Schneider eventually becomes horrified by, he he understands that Miller is sort of He's just become monomaniacal. Like his goal is to just kill the last buffalo standing in this herd, no matter what it takes, which obviously stands in for all kinds of American rapaciousness. And Yeah, for sure. And that part really reminded me if we talk about other film Westerns, the movie, The Searchers, there's a scene, many scenes in this movie sort of represent how terrifying and violent the Wayne-esque figure of the West is. But there's this one part where they come across a herd of buffalo. He and 
I can't remember the other actor that plays alongside him, but John Wayne just starts killing Buffalo after Buffalo. And because he's like, if we can kill them, then the indigenous people will be able to get to them. So we need to like Mm. wipe them out so we can dominate the landscape and keep them from being able to survive. Mm. And it reminded me a lot of that scene where, you know, you have this one person who is turned into something terrifying, the worst in America and in man. And, you know, this younger person who had no idea that this could be possible in someone. Mm-hmm. And it's it's effective. And because there's this point where it turns from making money off the buffalo hides to just slaughter for its own sake. And, and no, no one stops Miller from his destructive and self-destructive rampage. What does the dynamic between the men on the hunt say about how we handle problems. <laughs> well, well, Miller, is, you know, I mean, on the one hand, they they don't stop him, but they're also, to varying degrees, they are, he's necessary. They question it. They, they do. They question it. But in a way, he's kind of the, he does have the skills. I mean, he gets them through some incredible moments of, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when the average person would die. And one of the things I liked about reading this book was just the, um, this is true escapism for me because I come from a like a long line of very like where man versus nature is not even <laughs> we, we seed happily to nature. And if we have a nice view of a lake, that is that is great. Um, no need to test ourselves <laughs> against it. And but these lunatics do. And Miller really is like the most capable of them in addition to the craziest. And they can't really get back without him. And they, they can't survive out there without him. And once they're out there, it's kind of a different ballgame. It's one thing to argue about it when you're in the saloon. But once they're out yeah. there, you know, Schneider makes a play a couple of times to get out of there. He, he acts like he's going to leave them and just try to strike back on his own. But it's too forbidding, I think, a task. So there's, there's a, there is a yeah. weird way in which the book is, is, for all of its cynicism, it's also arguing for a little bit implicitly for strength in numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I will argue that, yeah, he's the one that's good enough to get him out of those situations, but he's also the one that gets them into those situations. hundred percent. Yes. No. I, yeah. Where, you know, at, at first he's like, we don't need to follow the river. We're going to be fine. And I'm just like, what are you doing? I was screaming what? internally at that point. Barren. If I was there, <laughs> I would have been like, please, please, can we just go by the river? I just, I'm so sorry. I'll pay you for your time. <laughs> but like, let's just stick to the water. <laughs> And then also when he's like, we need to stay in this valley until we kill every single buffalo. And then there's this great point where Schneider starts freaking out and you're like, what's going yeah. on? And you you see us. It's so beautiful. Like you see this little snowflake fall in front of their face. And Charlie just goes like, we would have bet you said we would be out of here by now. And Miller's like, well, looks like we're going to be here for weeks to months. Now we're snowed into the mountain. And that's. That's, that's terrifying. Inc- that was the really the yeah. That's an incredible scene, and that's one of three or four scenes where he so expertly creates this atmosphere of drama and little moments where everything turns and where, where they can't where they can't find the water, you know. And you have pages and pages of this description of the thirst and and then the snowflake, which you know they they start arguing immediately as if it's life and death when there's like two snowflakes in the air, but they just they know what's coming. And then yeah. the reader does too. And it's just this really incredible dramatic moment. 
Indeed. Uh, changing the subject a little bit, religion is present in this book in a number of ways. Charlie, who we've talked about a bit, he's the one-handed drunk who kind of clings to his Bible almost as much as he does to Miller's side. Andrews himself is the son of a Unitarian minister. And then there's this quasi-religious idea of manifest destiny hanging over the whole town of Butcher's Crossing and the pipeline of towns it belongs to. And and in that Emerson quote, he, he talks about a, a god kind of coming to judge them. And I definitely felt like there's certain moments, the snowstorm or when the buffalo do manage to, f- to try to escape the valley, you feel these like godly forces potentially intervening. But how did you see Williams engaging with with religion in the text i felt like he was more getting at the this this when nature stands in for religion which is kind of you know the emersonian yeah the rovian thing but yeah i mean charlie's bible makes some appearances there's at one point where he thinks he's lost it i think in a snowbank or something and he's digging around for it yeah and and the unitarian minister back home that kind of looms i think that w- andrews will andrews the the protagonist I think we're sort of meant to believe that part of his leaving Boston and that kind of life is to follow that Emersonian ideal of, are we not looking in the right places for God and religion? You know, is it possible that humanity is most transcendent in the wild um, and away from kind of culture and even books, including the Bible? And, And that's, I think, where the book does all of its work is in, you know, very... I mean, I found myself actually toward the end of it wondering like what a really fervent environmentalist would make of it, because in making things so extreme, the book does seem to be coming from a perspective of it's obviously not anti-nature, but it is denuding like any sense of it's saying like you think nature is holy and beautiful and you're going to go out in it and find yourself, mm-hmm. but nature is going to crush you yeah. and nature has no use for you. <laughs> and if you look at it crossways you know, you're, you're going to be a god. So <laughs> there's almost a way in which, you know, I don't know what Williams's own religious thoughts or feelings were, but I mostly thought, you know, Charlie seemed kind of ridiculous with his Bible. So I, I obviously don't think the book is trying to make any argument for that, but it's definitely making an argument, I think, against the idea that we, we get closer to God somehow when we're in nature and alone with it in the wall. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a bit in that way of like, the, the book I started thinking of halfway through a lot was um, John Krakauer's Into the Wild, mm-hmm. which is about um, Christopher McCandless, the young guy who went out in Alaska to kind of, you know, find his his true self and commune with nature and didn't end well. Sure, sure. It did seem like the, yeah. any reference to God was there to underscore the godlessness of the character or the yes. surrounding of the situation. Mm-hmm. Also, when we talk about this sort of Rocky Mountain setting, I honest, I don't know why I didn't put this together, but attending University of Denver must have put that sort of setting into his mind in some way. I don't know where he 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 worked spent there his life after his whole, his whole life, pretty much. Yeah, so that means I think he understands just how the force of nature. Because I I've been to that place uh, many times in my life. I have family in Denver, and the Rocky Mountains are simultaneously the most beautiful and terrifying mm-hmm. place to ever be yeah. i think and especially back then at least know, there weren't like yeah to and this book isn't set in denver no <laughs> <laughs> no but i i bet that had some sort of influence on the setting and the the idea of you know you don't want to go to nature it's it's not worth it yeah and, and he was 
and if he was raised in Northeast Texas, I'm not sure exactly where, but, you know, he grew up at a time when, you know, that was pretty rural too and hot as hell and pretty unforgiving. So, and we should, we, I think the book was published in 1960. Yep. But it's set in the 1870s. So it's kind of a, I think Latiole in the, in the introduction makes a point about it kind of coming out just as America was getting involved more heavily in Vietnam. We did. Yes. We were going to end on that point. Yeah. Okay. A little foreshadowing. We do want to talk a little bit about, I think we've been kind of sprinkling this in throughout different answers and questions, but there really is an elemental simplicity to the story and how it develops. And broadly, everything that happens in the book is literally encompassed on the back cover. Everything besides like literally the final pages is (laughs) mentioned. So if you read the back cover, you're going to know exactly what happens in the book. Yet it had, while we read it, we were like physically contorting ourselves in uncertainty (laughs) about what would happen next, even though we mostly knew. And like you said, from the beginning, we know this is like doomed to fail. This is not going to be some great story of they, they kill the Buffalo, they get the hides and you know, they come rich and buy a bunch of land. So how, how does John Williams achieve that where we understand the story, we understand the themes and yet it affects us in ways where we are not expecting it and haven't felt like that in other stories that are similar to it. Partly it's, I think, a result of those characters we were talking about and that even the people who are Mm -hmm. sketchy or (laughs) you don't necessarily root for, you know, there are four people out in this long second section of the book. And even though you don't know it's going to end well or you know it's not going to end well, you don't really know how it's not going to end well. Mm. And so I think there is just inherent drama in, are any of these people going to die? If so, when? Are they going to turn on each other in some violent way? You know, there's a lot of conflict between them. Is Andrews going to be sort of forced to become even less innocent and kind of, you know, get his hands bloody in a more profound way, more profound human way? So all of those things are strung along throughout it. And and then also he's just, you know, that nature stuff is, yeah, it's simple, but it's like anything else. Like if you, being simple doesn't mean that it's easy to do well. No. And the way that he does those things, like the snowstorm coming on or the way they deal with the snow after it's on the ground and are just expert. You know, he's just really good at stressing the drama of it and making you feel as if you're in it. And it's pretty dramatic just to be, you feel like you're in this situation and your palms are a little sweaty and you don't want, you feel suffocated sometimes by the nature and by what it's doing to them. Yeah. That when, when the first snowflake comes, I went back after I got through the idea of this, the snowstorm actually beginning I went back and read that a couple times over to try to understand like how he slowed everything down and created this momentous occasion around that snowflake. And it was so few lines, really. You would think that it would be more, that he would take more words to do that. But I could almost like hear music playing at certain points when the tone shifts in the book. Mm -hmm. And I just... I'm not a good enough reader or, or writer to understand it, but like I keep going back to it and being like, why? How, how did he do it? Yeah, he shifts things on a dime a lot. And, and in that case, you know, Schne- I think he had had Schneider drop a line like long, long enough before that, that you weren't really thinking about it, where he said something about the snow coming eventually. Yes. And you never know this time of year when it might snow here. It was like a long time, maybe even when they're still in town, he says that. Yeah. And then in that scene, what he, you know, what what he does, and it's so, I didn't see it coming. And so it was very, 
brilliant was the way that Schneider kind of pauses as if he hears like horses or something in the distance. He just basically pauses yes. and he, like as if he's sensing something bad. And at first I kept expecting other people to show up, you know, like some other hunting group mm-hmm. eat with them or kill them. And then he kind of points to the distance and Miller tries to like, is listening. He's got his ear out. He's like, what is he hearing? And then you realize that he's not pointing in the distance. He's just kind of pointing right in front of himself and there's a snowflake falling mm-hmm. and then another one. And it's just like, I know. it's a really great, it's, it's, it's one of those moments that I think I'll, I'll remember for a long time, which there aren't many of those in books. True. So by the book's conclusion, our characters return somewhat uh, beaten, beaten down, <laughs> maybe down a few, few men. Um, they have, <laughs> they are proven to have a mistaken conception of what has value in this rapidly changing economic situation. And again, in the introduction, Michelle refers to the irony of the book, which isn't a funny sort of irony, although you can laugh about it, maybe outside of the context of actually reading it. But when you're in there, there's this surreal quality to their return and to the, to the like monumental change that has taken place and what is just a, a season or two, or is maybe even longer. I was like questioning time, the passage of time, like how, how long they actually had been gone. But how did you see the, the book's ending commenting on the entire enterprise of self-discovery through nature, of Western conquest, expansion, and just the follies of these characters? And we can get into spoilers now. So this is the spoiler warning for the people that haven't read it, because we're going to dissect the ending of this a little bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. I also think, I do think that this is a fairly spoiler-proof book in a way. Yeah, he does this whole thing with time, right? Even when they're out in the Rockies, they're during the snowstorm, there's a lot of moments where they'll go days trying to survive, and Andrews, or Williams through Andrews, will make the point of how time sort of almost ceases to exist that it just feels like one long like white blanket yeah. <laughs> of existence and so they and they are gone for a long time but there is a feeling that they've been gone even longer than that there's almost like a rip van winkle feeling of yeah. they've been gone for this one long season but they're almost coming back as if they've been gone for like 25 years because things are changing so fast the railroads are coming the fashions are changing and they come back there's a lot still to learn. We won't spoil everything, but they just, you know, they come back and they're not doing well. Um, (laughs) And also they're not coming back to the financial windfall they expected to come back to partly for reasons that are, that I don't think will spoil because they're kind of interesting and, and subtle. But I think that the good question is if Andrews is the obvious person who gets his just desserts for thinking he could go out into nature and just like find himself and be all keen, there are all these other people involved and there is a sense of like yeah. the larger american ideal and again it's interesting i mean if you're going to focus metaphorically on the follies of manifest destiny and also i think in a very early way the follies of basically like environmental totalitarianism i guess <laughs> for lack of a better word just like yeah. you know sucking the environment dry mm. to the last drop 
then this is a great story to focus on. You know, I mean, people did go out and make their fortunes and the West was settled and there are, you know, people like happily living in California now. But this book is basically saying there was a lot of pain and suffering to do it. And also there's a lot of stupidity in thinking that. Yeah. You can just sort of snap your fingers and make yourself what you want to be in America. It's a dark, you know, it's a dark, cynical book. And I think on its own terms, it works really, really well at establishing what it's saying. Mm -hmm. I I think there's an interesting, and again, I guess I won't try to get too spoiler with it, but I think there's an interesting comparison between the overhunting that creates this scarcity that leads to prosperity being gone as well as the way the economic system makes people overbuy things to the point where hmm. you know they're no longer valuable anymore and so when when those times change and they come back to it it's like well you you got nothing <laughs> and you left what was actually valuable behind yeah there's a little bit of like what was miller you know that he that he didn't really take into account all the things that could go wrong there's that's I guess that's a little like that's another angle of the confidence man is not just that like he's conning you, but that the confidence is kind of stupid. Yeah. Like to, to be so yes. overly confident that you just you think you know everything. But it is funny that the book doesn't really I mean it does, I guess, in the end there's a very dramatic scene with Miller, you know, kind of losing his mind and and in a destructive <laughs> way. But um it doesn't I wouldn't say I'd be curious to know what you think about this, whether it, I wouldn't say that the lens ever really fully shifts from Andrews's kind of education about all this stuff so that, you know, you're not, I don't think, I never felt warned off of becoming Miller in a weird way, if you know what I mean. Mm, like, yeah. it was almost like I was just being shown through Andrews's experience that you need to think about this stuff because other people won't always. Yes, there was a line mm. that I thought summed his character up so well. I think it was during the snowstorm. Um when Miller kind of is like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Like, cause he, he got them in this situation, but then he does, I mean, Schneider kind of does his own thing for a second, but he, he saves their asses. Like to put it bluntly, um, the others followed him blindly trusting his blindness. Hmm. And it, he, he is this strong leader and in a way he makes victims of them, but he's also his own victim. And he, he's the kind of guy who it will go down with the ship, you know, even if yes, he sent it astray in, in the first place. And I wasn't necessarily sure in the end what to make of the lesson because Andrews's goal was so vague to begin with. It was just like, I'm going to find myself out here. I will find it by mass slaughtering buffalo in Colorado. I don't know how that is going to work, <laughs> but I may like end up with this whore along the way, like le- learn a few lessons there. McDonald gives him this speech, <laughs> which is a fascinating like little passage in and of itself, where he says sort of this near the end, he's the end. running him down. Yeah, near the end, near the end. But it echoes his initial warning that he should not go out and be a hunter. He'll be destroyed if he does that. He'll be no better than than any of the rest of them. And McDonald has his own blinders on, even when he's offering advice because he really just wants like Andrews to help him do his paperwork for some reason Um, which doesn't seem like that's going to solve his like life's problems anyway it's like McDonald is in some ways kind of the conscience of the novel like he's telling us in the beginning and at the end 
know, what's going on and, and what we, he's the high, he buys hides, he buys and sells them, but he's more of a businessman who just works in Butcher's Crossing. And he tells Andrews when he first comes to town, like, don't get involved with these guys. Yeah. And at first you're like, wimpy, like, you know, he just doesn't want him to, he wants him to use his mind and not get, you know, but he knows. Sure. He does know. But he, he kind of urges him at the end, like, do something meaningful because this isn't, you'll have nothing if you like pursue these like short-term short-term ends and i i still didn't know though like well what is meaningful what's the alternative and i guess that's the story of the west which is just like i don't know what what i'm going to but i know that that thing that i left wasn't it and that that's kind of the the whole thing it's just like a journey forward that is really well said you know that the west you just project onto it whatever you want from it like Mm -hmm. you're unhappy go west You'll find something different. You'll find yourself. You'll have more opportunity than you thought you would. You'll be a different person. Early on, he says, you know, this is Williams writing third person, but about Andrews. He says, he tried to shape in his mind what he had to say to McDonald. It was a feeling. It was an urge that he had to speak. But whatever he spoke, he knew would be but another name for the wildness that he sought. It was a freedom and a goodness, a hope and a vigor that he perceived to underlie all the familiar things of his life, which were not free or good, or hopeful, or vigorous. And that sort of, I mean, that's his, the broadness of that is kind of to your point. And, and you can hear, you can just hear the innocence in it. Like he's just, he's, he's looking yeah. for a really big, vigorous goodness out West. And it's like, yeah, you can understand that impulse, but when it's that ill-defined, it's, um, it can be scary. Yeah. And I'm, I think it's impressive that he gives a character such ill-defined motives and makes them the protagonist. Hmm. And it, it still works because it is, Inherently a vast, terrifying, unknown landscape. It, it fits in well. I'm also surprised, though I'm glad in many ways he didn't do it, that this wasn't a first-person book because Ant, everything is such through Andrew's eyes, as you said, that it really could just be, I saw Miller do this. Um, I struggled <laughs> for water here and stuff. Leaving it outside of Andrew's almost helps us project into being one of these people as well and, and feeling these different motives and reactions to what's going on even better and i thought that was really good so it ben- yeah i think it benefits hugely on every level from being told the way that it is and i think it also allow you know because i do th- i think in the beginning and the end you definitely see things very strongly through andrews's eyes but it's interesting that in the middle you kind of become a little more godlike mm-hmm. with william he's he's describing yeah. things that are happening that aren't necessarily like andrews might be dazed and under a snowbank but we're we're like following schneider mm-hmm. and charlie and how everyone's reacting to it and i don't think that could have been done as as i don't think it would have been as dramatic it was all told through the perspective of just this struggling brainy guy who's, who's getting battered out mm-hmm. and you know talking about this sort of blind going to find yourself in violence as as we said we wanted to come to this in the ending though it takes a 19th century context the book's publication it came out when the american troops were deployed to vietnam so how do you see Butcher's Crossing speaking to the 60s as well as into today? Or just the timelessness of this parable like It's true. Book. That's true. I think the timelessness is a big part of it and I'm not even sure, you know, we could talk about how it speaks to the 60s in Vietnam, but I but to your point, I'm not sure that that's I don't especially given that he was probably writing this in in the late 50s sure, and 50s. Sure. Sure. You know, it's it's certainly I think you've both gotten at a lot of what makes it powerful which is that it feels like it has a message which i usually hate in fiction (laughs) except that the message is so broad that i think you could put you could find your own 
version of it, whether you're an anti-imperialist, you're a, a strong environmentalist activist, or if you're religious or a seeker, you know, you're just looking for like the thing to commune with. All of those things are in here metaphorically. It's really all about like the human drive to, and this is a literary term, to do stuff. And <laughs> Miller has his drive and Andrews is looking for one. And in a way, it's almost like the trouble you get into when you seek higher meaning in things. I mean, I don't think Andrews went out there looking to be violent, but he just thought like in nature, there'll be these kind of more focused guys who know what they're doing and they'll kind of show me the way and I will come out of it a different person. Of course, he does. <laughs> Not the person he wanted to be necessarily. <laughs> no. I mean, there, there is, I think, I'm not sure if it's the introduction or not. It must be, or else maybe I was reading around and other stuff to prepare. But someone makes the point that there is something to the fact that he's, that at the end of the book, he's still moving west. Yes. You know, that he doesn't go back yeah. to Boston, tail between his legs. He kind of soldiers on just as a changed person. And I, you know, make of that what you will. But I did think that was interesting. It, he's lost to the landscape in a way. It felt appropriate to me. I think it. he had to just get on that horse and ride off into the dusty sunset. It was as it was going to be, kind of. Was there anything else that you that stuck out to you about the book, that impressed you about the book, that you wanted to mention? I think we covered the big stuff. I mean, it, like I said, it's not... There are maybe three or four big things, both about the the imagery, the plot, the symbolism. I do think in some ways it's it's kind of like a big, simple book but that is just done so well that it raises itself above the usual book like that. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's a book about an Edward Abbey book about the environment or something, or, you know, it's just, it, it really does. It functions on a very mythic level. Mm -hmm. Which I appreciate it. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, I will say it's just so different than Stoner that it, that it's um, interesting. I know that he also did the book about Augustus. So he, he was interesting because he didn't, he definitely didn't stay in the same lane. Yeah, I, and no. going through it, when when they have to skin a buffalo, when they have to um, mop down the mouths of the oxen and the horses because mm. they haven't had water in in days, I got I was like, did he live like this? How did he get this information? So the amount of research that he must have done in order to create to conjure these different worlds, I imagine it was extensive because I never got the feeling that yeah it was a Will Andrews writing about the West. It, it felt like someone who knew, who knew that environment. Yeah. And yet we know from, yeah. you know, we know that Williams, you know, his life was more like stoner than like yeah. Butcher's Crossing. You know, he was a creative writing teacher and I don't think he was a, so I, I started it with a little bit of skepticism, like prove to me that you can make this seem realistic, but uh -huh. right, whatever he did was <laughs> intense because the protracted scenes of like them, lacing together the hides to keep themselves warm in the snowstorm. And it's just all very detailed and convincing. Yeah. It's a process, process book. There were maybe a couple of, there were a couple of moments, I think, where a character maybe survived something. And I thought that seems a little unrealistic, but that's, that's just, <laughs> you need that for drama sometimes, I guess. Indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for reading this book with us. This is a book that I, I think is special. And I feel that way, like almost every time that we read an NYRB classic but um yeah this one does seem like it kind of earns its spot on a shelf to be revisited time and time again because the things it addresses just aren't going to get old yeah i agree and i i read a lot of their books 
and I have a lot more that I haven't read that are on my shelf. Uh, but this is this was, I think, one of the one of my favorites. Sweet. Great. So thanks for giving me a reason to read it finally. Yay. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstrap. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Unburied Books. Mm-hmm.